Okay, well, good morning. My name is uh, Doug. I'm the associate pastor here at Harvest. Pastor Lance is away on vacation, and he has been going through the book of Luke. Um, as we here at Harvest love to hear the preaching of God's Word, book by book and verse by verse. Um, and we especially love hearing it when it's done with accuracy and passion, um, both of which Lance has in spades. Hopefully, you'll get a little bit of that this morning as well, with God's help. Would you all please turn in your Bibles to the book of Genesis? Chapter 2, Genesis chapter 2. I know that you were in Philippians, now I'm asking you to go to Genesis. So, Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 and following. We're going to talk about shame and guilt and how the peace of God works itself into uh, the shame and guilt that we might be experiencing in our lives. Now, uh, Genesis 2, verses 18 through 25, we're going to focus on verse 25. Some of your Bibles will say, we're not ashamed. Or some of your translations will say, felt no shame. And we often think of this time in the garden before sin has entered into the world as this idyllic time. A time of paradise. A time when there was no, and nothing wrong. This is when in uh, the garden of Eden, we think of this is the time, the way it was supposed to be. Here in Genesis 2, being in God's glory is the way that it is supposed to be. In the Jewish culture, the word that is used to describe the end of Genesis chapter 2 is the word shalom. Some of you might know this word. It means peace, completeness, harmony, balanced, in accord, finished, done. Genesis 1.31 says, God saw... All that he had made, and behold, it was very good. Not just good, but it was very good. This is Genesis chapter 2. The end of Genesis chapter 2. Genesis 2, 2. By the seventh day, God had completed his work, which he had done. He was done. He was completed. He was finished. The idea here is that if God was done and finished, and that all was at peace and in accord, if you added one more thing, Or took away one more thing. It would no longer be done. The end of Genesis chapter 2. We see creation was in accord. Harmonious at peace and finished. So why am I going on and on about this? Because I think it's very interesting. And I hope you do as well. Don't you find it interesting. That the way God describes this idyllic situation. In Genesis chapter 2. Is with the words. They felt no shame. Isn't that interesting? That's the way it's supposed to be. That's the way it's supposed to be. A time when there is no shame. You know, Adam and Eve didn't have any awareness of evil. At this point in history, there was no evil. Uh, There was nothing to be ashamed of as evil had not yet been committed. Uh, There was no bad intentions. No lies, no manipulation, no hidden agendas, no envy, no murder, no hatred, no jealousy, no lust, no gluttony. When we talk about a time, you know, when you didn't have to lock your doors. What about a time when there is no doors? A time of innocence, complete. Complete innocence. Adam and Eve were innocent. 
uncorrupted, without guile. Guile's an old word. It means cunning or manipulative. No one is manipulating. No hidden agendas. All of us were at some point in our lives innocent. Now, I don't mean we were sinless like Adam and Eve at Genesis chapter 2. We're born into sin. Sin entered in Genesis chapter 3, and we inherited that sin from Adam and Eve. Just like we inherited hands and eyes and mouths from them, we also inherited their sin. But there is a time when you're young, maybe three, maybe four, maybe five years old, where you're innocent to the evils of the world, where you trust the adults around you. It's why you can take advantage of children. It's why people do take advantage of children in the most despicable, disgusting ways. Because they're innocent. And all of us, all of us at some point, experience that kind of innocence. It reminds me of a poem I heard, and I condensed it here. Um, But it goes like this. The greatest poem ever known is the one poets have outgrown. The poetry innate untold of being only four years old. Still young enough to be a part of nature's great impulsive heart. Born comrade of the bird, beast, and tree, and unselfconscious as the bee. And life that sets all things in rhyme may make you poet too in time. But there were days, O oh tender elf, oh, there were days, O oh tender elf, when you were poetry itself. That was by Christopher Morley. There was a time when we were all a tender elf. When the evil of the world had not yet corrupted, where we still trusted those around us. But then something happens. We grow up. Just like Adam and Eve, we find ourselves at a crossroads where we can maintain that innocence or we can indulge. Or even worse, maybe it's not you that were at the crossroads. Someone else took advantage of you and they indulged in something selfish. And you were introduced to the evils of the world through someone else's sin. And your innocence was taken from you. Maybe something has happened to you, or maybe you indulged in some kind of sin. Where you were at the crossroads and you indulged. You know, God gives us a glimpse of this crossroads uh, just a chapter later in uh, 4 7, chapter, Genesis chapter 4, verse 7. This is a story of Cain and Abel. We talked about this a little bit in uh, Sunday school. God looked down on Abel's sacrifice and found favor on it. His brother Cain, didn't, God didn't have favor on his sacrifice. So Cain starts to get jealous and angry. And God comes down to him and says, Hey, 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 Cain, listen to this. If you do well, will not your countenance, uh, countenance be raised up and be lifted up? It's like saying to Cain, Cain, if you do well, like if, if you do well, like what if Cain went to his brother and said, man, Abel, it's so great that God found favor in your sacrifice. That's awesome. I love that. God didn't find favor in mine. I messed that up. What did you do, Abel, so that I can have favor in, in God's eyes like you did? He could do well. He could do well. And then his countenance would be lifted up. Am I right? Now, God says, on the other hand, if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you. 
but you must master it. And we often think of temptation as something that we can play with. But sin is crouching at the door. We think we can crack that door open and just look out there and let it, be, let it tantalize us for a little bit. That somehow once we crack that door open, we, can, we have control and we can open and close that door at will. But that's not what God's saying here. That once you crack that door open, it wants to devour you. Think of King David looking over the balcony at Bathsheba. Crack that door open. Lingering, just letting it tantalize him long enough, brings her over, commits adultery, then commits murder, and then lies about it. That's King David. Y'all, sin is crouching at the door. So how did Adam and Eve, how did Cain do when they were at that crossroads? Obviously, they failed horribly. But can any of us cast any stones at them? We, like our ancestors, Adam and Eve, have been at some point in our lives, or we have at some point in our lives sins when we were put to the crossroads. May not be every day, but I'm sure there's a lot of people in here right now, you might be thinking of something that you wish you would not, not have done. We've compromised our innocence. We've justified our selfish actions. We've indulged in darkness. We have let loose our tongues. We have all sinned and lost that tender elf that we once were. And what happens when we sin? We all know this. Genesis 2.17. God says, But from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. You shall not eat. For in the day you eat of it, you will surely die. The Apostle Paul harkens back to this when he writes in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. So what happens when we sin? We die. Now, looking at Adam and Eve, did Adam and Eve die immediately when they ate the forbidden fruit? They take a bite, boom, fall over, dead. No, they didn't. You look at Genesis chapter 3, verse 21. God says he took skins and covered Adam and Eve. Well, where did he get those skins? Something needed to die. God had to sacrifice something to cover Adam and Eve. So something did die, but it wasn't Adam and Eve, and it wasn't immediate. And so, not getting what you deserve, that's called mercy. Mercy. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. Mercy is different than grace, by the way. Grace is getting undeserved favor, whereas mercy is not getting what you deserve. And isn't that all of us? Wouldn't that be interesting? I mean, how many people would be alive if God killed you immediately after your sin? No one. So he gives you mercy, everyday mercy. And so the paradise of the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 2, where there is no shame, has now been shattered. By the introduction of sin and its consequences, everything is thrown off balance. There's no longer harmony but discord. Sin has been added to creation. Remember, he said it was very good. It was done. Doesn't need anything more. Doesn't need anything less. Sin came along and was added to creation. And now creation itself is no longer done, but it is now undone. Shalom has been broken. Is a terrible predicament we find ourselves in. 
For we long to be in relationship with the Lord. God made us, just like Adam and Eve, to be in relationship with Him. Genesis chapter 2, Adam and Eve could walk right up to the, to the Lord in His full glory, look at Him in the face, and start talking to Him like you and I are talking now. Sin entered in the world, they got cast out of the garden. They do not, no longer have immediate access to the Father. And we, like Adam and Eve, were all born with this God-shaped hole in our hearts. It is an infinite hole. Infinite. And you can fill it with whatever you want. And we often try to, don't we? We'll fill it with all kinds of different things. But only something infinite can fill an infinite hole. So we long for being in close relationship to God the Father. We long for it. But we're forever separated from him because of sin and the consequences. And it could be said that we are in perpetual guilt from the sin we inherited and the sin we currently commit. Perpetual guilt. So what is guilt? It's a good question. Guilt. So for the purposes of this sermon, I'm defining guilt as this. A painful feeling of embarrassment or distress caused by the awareness of wrong or foolish behavior. A painful feeling of embarrassment or distress caused by awareness of wrong or foolish behavior. Now, this is kind of an abstract description. So, let me give you a little story. Is anybody in here named Billy? No? Okay, so little Billy. Little Billy, about 8, 10 years old, somewhere in there. It's bedtime. Mom and dad say, Billy, it's time to go to bed. Billy says, can I have a cookie? Mom and dad say, you know the rules, Billy. No cookies at bedtime or after bedtime. Now you go to bed. Billy goes to bed. He waits a little bit. Y'all know what's going to happen, right? He cracks that door open. Looks around. See, he thinks he's a ninja. He thinks he's quiet. But God loves parents. Because when Billy opens that door, but he doesn't hear it because he's a ninja. And he's walking down the hall. And parents are going, "Uh uh-oh, what's Billy up to? And Billy's ninja walks into the kitchen, tries to turn the light on, hits every little pot and pan mom has over by the light switch. Bing, bong, bing, bing, bong. He didn't hear it. He's a ninja. He grabs a chair, slides it across the kitchen. Climbs up the chair, gets up there on the counter. Mom and dad are now in the kitchen watching with the lights off. Little Billy puts his hand in the cookie jar. Mom and dad flip the lights on. Billy looks up. What does he feel? What is he feeling? Guilt. He's feeling guilt. Hey, get your hand out of that cookie jar. We told you already. It's a negative emotion that's helpful in the prevention of doing bad behavior again. Guilt is about something that you did Y'all, guilt is good. That's a good thing. As Christians, we have the Holy Spirit. And if, you, if there's something that is convicting you about doing something wrong, that's called the conviction of the Holy Spirit. That's good. I had a professor at DTS, he said, if you don't feel convicted about doing wrong things, if you're cheating and you don't feel conviction about that, you, you better check your heart. You may have calloused your heart so much to the conviction of the Holy Spirit that you no longer even feel it anymore. But if you feel bad, if you feel guilty about doing wrong things, that's good. That's evidence of the Holy Spirit at work in your life. 
Y'all, guilt is good. Now, shame, on the other hand, it's a negative feeling used by Satan to keep you in slavery. Slavery. Genesis chapter 4, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you. Sin wants to come in and take over. Sin wants to come in and take over. Shame is about leverage based on exposing those dirty little secrets. Oh man, we can't let anybody know about that thing that you did. That inky black gross thing. Boy, if anybody ever found out about that, they'll never look at you and say, we'll kick you out of this church. Now, this is kind of an abstract description as well. So let me give you another story, okay? Anybody in here named Johnny? Any Johnnies in here? Okay, Johnny, Johnny and his sister Susie. We good? Okay. Johnny and Susie. They go visit grandma every summer. Grandma's got a nice big spread out in the country. She's got a pond in the backyard. And every summer they go out there and they do chores and stuff. It's a wonderful thing. So Johnny's out doing his favorite thing at grandma's house. He's in the backyard or the back where the, the pond is. And he's skipping stones. Y'all, you know that, right? You know, do, 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 down, skipping stones. He sees on the other end of the pond. He looks down there and he sees um, a group of ducks that grandma feeds. You know, grandma loves these ducks. And they're over there, and he goes, man, I, I wonder if I could throw a rock that far. I don't even think I could throw it that far. You know how kids' brains work, right? So he rears back, and he throws this rock, and he sees it going. And he knows the trajectory. He's, it's aimed right for these ducks. So he starts to, you know, get scared. He's running around the pond, clapping, hey, ducks, fly away, fly away, ducks. And sure enough, the rock lands on one of the ducks. Thud kills the duck. He makes it over to where the ducks are. It's grandma's favorite duck. What is he going to do? He feels terrible. He's holding the grandma's favorite duck and he looks around. And he just digs this shallow grave, covers it up real quick, pats it around so that nobody can see. And he looks up at the house and guess who's looking at him in the house? Susie. She sees him and his, her lips curl in an evil smile. Later on at dinner time, Grandma says, Susie, it's your turn to clean the table and do the dishes. Susie says, I think Johnny wants to do that. <laughs> Grandma says, what? And Johnny goes, okay, I'll do it. Grandma says, that's kind of weird. So he gets up, does the dishes, all that. Later on, they're on the patio, listening to music, whatever they're doing, having a good old time. It's about bedtime. Susie, it's your turn to sweep off the patio so uh, we will all go to bed. Susie smiles again and looks at Johnny. I think Johnny wants to sweep the patio. Johnny says, oh. slavery, y'all. Slavery. Fear of exposure. I know what you did. I saw that. I heard that. I'm watching you. Revelation 12.10 talks about the job description. Y'all know what, want to know what Satan's job description is? For the accuser of our brothers and sisters has been thrown down. So it's in the future, right? When, when he's defeated, okay? But here's the job description. The one who accuses them before God day and night. 
hey, 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 did you see that? Did you see what they did? Look at that, look, 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 right there. See that? Did you hear him? Did you hear that? Look how fast he's driving. Look how fast, oh, did you hear? Look at what they said about that in their hearts, what I'm talking about. See that? Look, look, look. Day and night, accusing, accusing, and accusing. He will accuse and accuse and accuse and throw all kinds of mud until something sticks. Once something sticks, now the enemy's got leverage over you. He's got leverage. Just real quick, if you all will turn to 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 22. 2 Timothy 2, 22. A lot of twos. Second Timothy two twenty two and following. I love that sound. Page is turning. Okay, uh, let's see. We'll jump down. Uh, skip twenty two. Um, verse twenty three. Let's start at verse twenty three. Refuse. Oh, y'all, we all there? 2 Timothy 2, 22 and following. Well, let's just start on 22, right? Flee youthful lust and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Refuse foolish and ignorant speculations or arguments, knowing that they produce quarrels. The Lord's slave or bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged. 25, with gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition. If perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth. Listen to this. Verse 26. That they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil. Having been held captive by him to do his will. How does he get you to be captive? How does he get you to be slaves? He's got to have leverage on you. He's going to throw Accusation, accusation, after accusation until something sticks. And boy, once he's got you, oh, I caught you now. Just like Susie. I think Johnny wants to do the dishes tonight. Johnny does not want to do the dishes, y'all. Now, if you remember the way God described the Garden of Eden, they felt no shame. There was no shame. Nothing could stick to Adam and Eve. Nothing could stick to them. No accusations could be made against them. Satan had no leverage. But once sin entered into the world, that threat of exposure turned you into a slave. And over time, over time, it goes from something that you did or something that you've done to something that you are. And so we're going to get into this. I want to put side by side. It's probably in your bulletin. But this is a great way to view Shame, in contrast to guilt. So very quickly, guilt is a tool of the Holy Spirit. Guilt is good. It says you broke something. Like, if y'all have young teenage boys in your house, you can't have nice things. Okay? I love you, Fisher. I'm saving up for when you go to therapy. All right? So, sorry. My son runs everywhere. He runs all over the place. And he cuts corners and stuff. He knocks over picture frames, all that stuff. He breaks stuff. All right? That's what boys do. Guilt says, you broke something. 
Guilt says this is something that you've done. It's motivated by God's love. Guilt is about progress, and it is based in the truth. Now look how this is contrasted with shame. It's a tool of Satan. It is bad, and it says you're broken. Hey, slow down around that corner. Guilt says, come here, come here, Fisher. Look at this. You broke this thing. Now, some of you may have come from a family or maybe you, there's a boss or someone in your life who say, you did this because you're broken. You break things because you're broke and you're broken. And you always have been and you always will be. Guilt is about something that you've done. Shame is about something that you are. Shame is about something that you are. It's motivated by Satan's hatred of humanity and God's goodness. And get this, shame is about perfection. You ought to have this. You should have done this. You could have done this. Shoulda, woulda, couldas. That's based in perfection. Let me burst your bubble. You're not perfect. You're not. But guilt is about progress. Hey, I messed up. I broke that thing. I did that thing. I stole that cookie. You're right. That's something that I did. I feel bad about that. I'm embarrassed about that. I don't want to do it again. Hey, all right, good. That's about progress. Shame is about perfection. You need, you, you ain't, you're a low-down, dirty thief, Billy. You've always been a thief, and you always will be a thief. That's shame. And you'll never be anything but a thief. Because contrasted with that is perfection. And it's based in lies. Lies. So we got the plan of the enemy. I told you. Sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you. That word desire in Hebrew is teshoka. Teshoka. And it means sin has... It's, the idea is that it's a river that's overflooded. It is an all-encompassing craving. An, an overflowing longing. An all-encompassing craving to devour. To devour. In other words, sin wants to take over. It wants to be your master. It wants everything. And if anybody here has ever dabbled in sin, it takes you further than you want to go, it leaves you there longer than you want to stay, and it costs you more than you want to pay. Because it wants everything. Sin wants everything. 1 Peter 5.8, the adversary, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Devour. The devouring comes... The devouring comes when you allow the lies of shame to become true and the truth to become lies. Does that sound familiar? It should. Paul says in Romans 1.25. So they traded the truth about God for a lie. When you exchange the truth of God for a lie, lies become true and the truth becomes what? A lie. And your feelings will lie to you. Not all the time. But often. So when you start to believe the lies of the enemy who tells you that you are broken 
instead of that you broke something. When you start to believe the lies of the enemy that tells you that you're nothing but a low-down, dirty thief, Billy, you're nothing but a low-down, dirty thief. You always have been. You always will. Instead of making a mistake and just taking a cookie. The lies of the enemy that tells you that you're unlovable and unredeemable. Instead of just making a mess or making a mistake. You start to believe those lies, that's when the devouring begins. The end result of the enemy's use of shame is slavery and death. This kind of death could be emotional, could be spiritual, even physical. You think Satan cares? Nope. Uh Uh-oh, this person got saved. We've got another Christian on our hands here. Oh, well, leave them be. Holy Spirit dwells inside them. We don't need to mess with them anymore. No, 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 no. How can we mess up their relationship with their wife? How can we mess up the marriage? How can we mess up the relationship with their kids? How can we do that? Let's, let's accuse and accuse and throw mud and throw mud. Let's just see what sit. We'll see what sticks. Oh, I got them. I got them. Lies are the side door that Satan will come in, sneak in. It's a good plan the enemy has. The plan of God, on the other hand, is it any secret that God's plan for us is life and freedom instead of death and slavery? <laughs> One of my favorite scenes, I love this scene, y'all, in Luke chapter 4, verse 17 and 21. The scroll of Isaiah the prophet was handed to him. Who's him? Anybody know? Jesus. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. Who's he talking about? Talking about Jesus. I was just thinking about this. Like when Isaiah was writing this, you know, and Jesus was like, oh, this is going to be awesome. When I say this in Jerusalem, like this is going to be awesome. So anyways, yeah, so, so Jesus is reading this. Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim the captives will be released. That the blind will see and that the oppressed will be what? Set free. Set free. And that, time, that the time of the Lord's favor has come upon... Oh, wait, so the blind will see, the oppressed will be set free. And that the time of the Lord's favor will come, the roll... He rolled up the scroll, handed it back to the attendant, sat down. It's like a mic drop. Boom. And what? And I don't think anybody understood because it says here, they begin to speak to... Uh, well, let's see, they, uh, all the eyes of the synagogue looked at him intently. He's like, oh, they don't get it. Well, let me help him out. He gets up and begins to speak again. You know the scripture you just heard? The thing I was just talking about, that's fulfilled today. That's me, y'all. Mic drop again, boom, right? But the reason why I bring this up, because it's a great scene, but also he came to set the captives free. Y'all, Exodus, the book of Exodus is a story about setting captives free. Y'all know about the year of Jubilee? Everything goes back to zero. No more slaves, no more debt. Everybody's land goes back to, everything gets set to zero. That's freedom. What about the sacrificial system in the Old Testament? The, the innocent blood of the animal pays for the guilty life of the person so that you can be free. 
The book of Judges, uh, Othniel, Ehud, Shamgar, Gideon, these all are, God raises up these guys because the nation of Israel is in slavery. He raises them up to set the nation of Israel, what? Free. God wants to give you life and freedom. Shame is a negative feeling used by Satan to keep you in slavery that leads to death, whereas guilt is a negative feeling used by God to keep you out of slavery that leads to life. Now, y'all listen to this. We all sin. It's inevitable. What we do with our sin will determine whether we're going to be a free or slave. If when you sin, you see it as something that you did, that you are guilty, you take ownership, you confess, you repent, you are forgiven. You're forgiven. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our, our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We're back in Genesis chapter 2, y'all. No mud can stick to you now. That's good news. There's freedom in that. However, however, if when you sin, you let it take root and believe the lie that you are worthless, useless, unlovable, unredeemable, powerless, You open up that door. That door in Genesis chapter 4, verse 7. You open up that door. And sin has come in and begun to devour you. The mud sticks and you're a slave. Now, a lot of us here grew up in Christian homes, which means it's possible that you've never really indulged in some kind of horrific, terrible sin. That doesn't mean you don't struggle with shame. Remember, shame is about leveraging exposure to keep you a slave. So if there isn't any kind of horrific sin in your life, how is Satan going to get this leverage over you? How is he going to get the mud to stick? He's going to have to make something up. What is Satan the father of? Lies. Oh, he's good at them too. He's going to tell us lies. And I tell you guys, this is what I deal with more in ministry, more than anything else. The lies that Christians believe. This causes more trouble than just about anything else. And here's what they sound like. Here's what the, here's what the lies of Christians sound like. I'm really stressed out, Pastor Doug. Uh, I just, is God still loving me after I did this or that? Oh, after I, di- after I did this or that, well, I'm nervous that I've, I've lost my salvation. If anyone found out about this or that, they would never accept me again. Oh, I'm all alone. God doesn't love me. He's far away. There's no way that God knows what I'm going through. God simply cannot do anything about my situation. All these statements are based in lies. They're all based in lies. How do you fight lies, y'all? With the truth. You fight lies with the truth. Y'all, Christians love the truth. 2 Corinthians 4, 1 and 2 says, Therefore, since God has 
in His mercy, has given us this new way, we never give up. We reject all shameful deeds and un- underhanded methods. We don't try to trick anyone or distort the Word of God. We tell the truth before God. And all who are honest know this. Christians love the truth. So what is the truth? Some of you might know where I'm going. But first, we have to talk about something else. Remember, we're talking about the peace of God. So let's quickly turn to Philippians chapter 4. Back where Mr. Rob was reading. And I'm just going to dial down real quick because we're running low on time. Uh, Philippians 4. I'm going to jump here right to verse 7. We're going to dial it in. And the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. What is the peace of God? What is that? You ever thought about that? This is a pretty important thing. It's going to guard your hearts and your minds. What's the peace of God, y'all? I spent a long time thinking about this. This is what I came up with. The peace of God is feeling accurately what you know to be true about God. Let me say that again. The peace of God is feeling accurately what you know to be true about God. Again, this is kind of an abstract definition. So let me give you some help. You guys know God's sovereign, right? You guys know God is in control of all things, yes? You also know God is good, and what He does is ultimately for His good, and therefore also good for those who believe. Right? We know that, don't we? Does it always feel that way? Doesn't feel that way, does it? Not all the time. Sometimes it feels like God's not sovereign, feels like He's not in control. Sometimes it feels like He's far away. Sometimes it feels like he's not good. It feels that way. And these feelings are not based on the truth, are they? What's the truth? Truth is, God is in control. That God is good. That God is not far away. That's the truth, but your feelings are not based on the truth when it comes to this. They're based on lies. Therefore, those feelings do not accurately represent reality. Those feelings are not representative of reality. Now, I know anyone here, 35 and older, this makes perfect sense to you. You're like, yeah, of course. But for the younger generation, this is a difficult concept. Because they... they, They think their feelings are more real than anything else. Feelings trump all. So when you start to believe that those feelings are true, those lies, those feelings based in the lies, when you start to believe that those feelings are true, you've exchanged the truth of God for a lie, y'all. That God's far away, that God doesn't care, that God's no good, that God's not in control. You feel that way and you go, you know what, I don't really think he is in control. You've exchanged the truth for a lie, haven't you? The feelings that are based on circumstances are most likely not based in reality. 
But if you believe those feelings are true, then you've exchanged the truth for a lie. And this is what I'm talking about. The culture, the culture your kids are growing up in, is this, this is what they're dealing with. A culture where feelings are more real than reality. And this is what it sounds like. If you're a little boy and you feel like a girl, what does the culture tell you? You're a little girl. You feel like a girl, you're a girl. If you're, if you're a little girl and you feel like a boy, oh, well, you're a boy. We change your name. You can have whatever pronouns you want. Blah, blah, blah. That's the world your kids are growing up in. And they, this, is, this is real thing for them. So you guys want to know what the truth is? John 17, 13, and 17. Jesus says, but now I'm coming to you and these things I speak in the world so that you may have my joy made full in themselves. I have given them your word. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. That's the truth. This does not care about your feelings, y'all. Now, God does. He's concerned, okay? He's not a cold and distant God. And he wants to know why you feel like maybe he's not good. He wants to know why you feel maybe why he's far away, why it feels that way, because that's not the truth. The truth is he is close. He does care. He is good. He is in control. That's the truth, but it may not feel that way. You ever felt like God's not omnipotent? The word almighty is used to describe God some 56 times in the Bible. These are the passages that we use to reveal, that reveals God's omnipotence. Genesis 1.1, Psalms 33.9, all-powerful creator. Genesis 17.1, almighty to Abraham. Exodus 6.3, almighty to Moses. 2 Corinthians 6.18, almighty to the New Testament believers. Revelation 1.8, or 6, I'm sorry, 19.6, almighty to the apostle John. Y'all, if the Bible says that God is all-powerful, and we know that the truth, remember Jesus says, your word is truth. If we know that that's the truth, and we know that God doesn't lie, then we know that this is true. God is omnipotent. And it's nothing to do with how you feel. That's the best part. Ever feel like God doesn't know what I'm going through? Maybe like it's, God's not omniscient? Psalm 130, 139, 1 through 4. You search me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit down and when I rise, you perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out, my lying down. You are familiar with my ways before a word is on my tongue. You know it completely. On and on and on. Isaiah 46.10, Hebrews 4.13, nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Matthew 10.29-31, he knows how many hairs is on your head. If, God, if this is the word of God is true, right? Jesus says... Your word is truth. If this is true, does this have anything to do with your feelings? You may feel like God doesn't know what's going on, but does he? Yes, he does. You might feel like he's far away, that he's not omnipresent. 1 Kings 8, 27, 
But will God really dwell on earth? The heavens, even the highest heavens cannot contain you. How much less this temple I have built. Psalm 139, 7 through 10. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make a bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. Jeremiah, Jeremiah 23, 23. If God, if the word of God says this is true, and we know that your word is truth, does this have anything to do with how you feel? No. Now I want you guys to try to imagine that you let what you know to be true about God be the main influence on how you feel. Let me ask you a question. If God is in control, if God is really in control, today could be the last day you ever experience fear, stress, anxiety, loneliness, Think about that. Today could be the last day you experience these things. If God really is sovereign and all-powerful, this could be the last day you experience fear or stress. Think about that. No matter what you're going through, your circumstances will no longer have any flu- influence. No more influence on how you feel. Or any bearing on reality, at least. Think about Job. He lost his daughters, his sons, manservants, maidservants, cattle, land, houses, money, reputation. He even lost his health. The test for Job was to maintain the truth of God and not indulge in a feeling-filled pity party, which is probably what I would have done. He still felt grief and loss and anger and frustration. He felt all the stuff, but he never turned on God. He never allowed his feelings to dictate the truth. Job maintained that God is good. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, King Hezekiah before Sennacherib, Elijah's servant in 2 Kings 6, 15 through 16, this story. Remember this, the servant comes out and he's freaking out because there's an army surrounding him. And Elijah says, Let's open his eyes. And there's chariots of fire everywhere. Like Job, these are examples in the Bible of people who didn't allow their feelings to control them, but allowed the truth of God to control their feelings. Imagine Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego standing at the fire. What would the, what would the wisdom of man say? I'm about to die. You better save your skin. This is going to hurt. You better save yourself. Go, do, go, t- go tell that king whatever he needs to know. That's the wisdom of man. But they're not letting their feelings dictate their reality. They're letting the truth of God dictate how they feel. And they say, bring it on. Throw me in the fire. I'll die and go and be with God. You throw me in the fire and maybe God saves me. Either way, it's a win-win. What you got? Bring it on. They all had the peace of God that surpasses and goes beyond and transcends human understanding. How is it possible to get this? How did Job and David and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, how did they do it? How did they get this peace of God? Y'all, it's not a big secret. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. 
Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean on your understanding. In all your ways, submit to Him, and He will make your paths straight. Well, what does that look like in real life, Pastor Doug? Well, I'm so glad you asked me. (laughs) Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Let your gentle spirit be known to all people. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious for anything, but in everything, in prayer, in pleading, in humility, and with thanksgiving and gratitude, let your requests be made known to God. And guess what? The peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds. NASB, the peace of God which transcends all understanding, NIV. You will experience the peace of God which exceeds anything we can understand. The peace will guard your hearts and your minds as you live in Jesus Christ or in Christ Jesus, New Living Translation. Y'all, this is a discipline. This is something you have to work at. This is, a, this, is, this is part of the sanctification process of bringing out what God has deposited inside of you. And it takes time takes time. Now, shame will lie to you and say, you have to fix this today, like a light switch, on, off. You have to be perfect today. That's a lie. Remember, it's about progress. This takes time. The peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, takes time and discipline. You got to work at this. Now, I know, I know we've covered a lot this morning, so this is what, you want, oh, this is what I want you all to take away, Okay. Shame is a negative feeling used by Satan to keep you in slavery. I'm going to connect the dots here. You ready? Shame usually comes in the side door of your soul through lies. Feelings that are based in lies lead to spiritual, emotional, and even physical death or slavery. To fight these lies, the enemy, you have to use the truth. What's the truth? God's word is true. There's your nutshell. When you discipline yourself in the truth, your feelings will, over time, your feelings will, over time, start to match what you know to be true about God. Does that make sense? Over time, you'll start to acknowledge, hey, God's in control. And those feelings that you have will start to match that. And they will no longer be based in, oh, God's, he fell off his throne. You'll become one of those who don't allow their feelings to control them, but allow the truth of God to control their feelings. How amazing would that be? When that happens, you'll have the peace of God that surpasses all comprehension. And this peace will guard your heart and your mind in Christ. Now, I'll tell you real quickly, Piper had uh, scoliosis surgery a couple years ago. And then we were up in Dallas. And um, the night, the night before the surgery, it was an eight-hour-long surgery. And I met the doctor, I met the surgeon. He looked like he was about 16 years old. I was not confident in this guy. And I was very prepared to be up all night worried sick about dropping my daughter off. This is COVID, so I, was, I, mean, I had to drop her off. I couldn't go in with her. Only Maggie could go. I was, I was confident I was going to be up all night worried sick about this surgery. And I... I was getting text messages from Harvest. Hey, we're praying for Piper. We're praying for you. And before we went to bed, Maggie and I prayed. And we said, Lord, you're good. And we trust you with our daughter. And this wave of peace came over me. And I slept like a baby that night. Because what I knew to be true about God matched my feelings. And it was amazing. And I'll never forget it. 
It changed my life. Because I realized God loves her more than I ever could. He loves her so much more than I ever could. And he wants what's best for her. And if that means that she goes into the surgery and it goes bad and she dies and she gets to be with God, hey, that's a win. That's a win. But if it goes well and she gets to be with me, hey, that's a win too. God is in control. That took discipline. That was hard. It wasn't easy to get there. Philippians 4.9, the things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. And the God of peace will be with you. Y'all, you have to practice these things. You have to practice these things. It's not easy. Some of you are struggling with shame this very moment. I want to tell you a few things before we leave. God loves you. 1 John 4, 9 through 11. God holds your hand. Isaiah 43, 13. God is close to the brokenhearted. Psalm 34, 18. God is good. And He is tender. And He is gentle. Psalm 145. He watches over you and He protects you. Psalm 121. He gives rest to the weary. He is gentle and humble in heart and his burden is light and his yoke is easy. Matthew eleven twenty eight. Y'all, he separates our sin from us as far as the east is from the west. How close is the east from the west? That's forever, y'all. That's true. Shame doesn't want you to know that. Another thing shame doesn't want you to know, that if we're faithful to confess, he is faithful to forgive. 1 John 1, 9. You're done. Lord, I did that thing. It was ugly and it was wrong. And I'm sorry. Please forgive me. You're done. You're done. Don't hold on to that stuff. Last thing I want to tell you. Johnny and Susie. Susie continues to hold leverage over Johnny all summer long. Maybe not all summer, maybe another week or so. Johnny's getting tired of this. He's getting real upset. And so he finally goes to grandma. He's like, I've had it. I don't even care if grandma knows about this dead duck. I don't even care anymore. I'm going to go tell grandma. I'm going to tell her myself. So he goes to grandma. Grandma, I'm so sorry. I was playing around in that back pond. I threw a rock. I wasn't trying to kill one of those ducks, but I accidentally killed your favorite duck. And he's crying his eyes out. I'm so sorry, Grandma. And Grandma leans down and grabs his face. She says, I saw the whole thing. I was watching from the second story. I saw it. And when Susie started using that against you, I knew what she was doing. And I was just going to see how long you would do it. You would let her have leverage over you. She goes, but Johnny, I saw the whole thing. And the moment you did it, I forgave you. I'm just waiting to hear you tell me. She gives him a kiss. I love you. Is it any different with us? You think God doesn't know? You think God doesn't want you 
come to him, he can grab you and just say, listen, I already know. I already know what you did. I've already forgiven you. And all the anger that I had against that thing that you did, I've poured it out on my son. And it passes over you. And I love you and I forgive you. Now go be free. Don't hold on to this nonsense anymore. You're done. Go be free and live life. Oh, that's a good God. Let's pray. Father, what an incredible God we serve. Who do we have in heaven but you? Lord, you hold us by your right hand. You care for us. You watch over us. You love us. You are gentle. You are tender. What an incredible God we serve. Let us run to you. Lord, let us run to you. Let us not go one moment, not another moment without getting off our chest that which we, the enemy is using as leverage against us. It's not like you don't know, Lord. You do. And so let us go to you, Lord, and let us live in freedom. Let us live in freedom and have life, Lord, life abundant in you. It's only found there anyways. Let the word of God dwell richly in our hearts and in our lives, Lord. And so, Father, we pray all this in your son's name, Jesus. Amen. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May his face shine upon you. May his countenance be raised upon you and give you peace.